of the Lord, the joy of the Lord, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Let me be seated. Well, good morning, church. It is always a blessing for us to be able to gather together. I'm even more conscious of that in the wake of, of the COVID-19 restrictions that, that we've been dealing with for a long, long time. It's just a, it's a blessing uh, to be able to be together. Uh, if you're new here, if this is your first Sunday here, or if you've been visiting for a few weeks, I uh, just want to thank you for being here. And uh, as Stephen encouraged you, please stick around for us to get to visit with you. There's also right outside in our lobby an area where, again, I guess we're, we're throwing Keith under the bus and saying he's the one who will answer any question you've got. Uh, but no, we, we just hope that you stick around long enough for us to get to visit with you, get to, to know you a little bit better, and share with you uh, our passion as a church family for what it means to be everyday disciples who are giving our lives to the mission of God. And so we just want to ask you to, to visit with us and, and get to know us a little bit better. So here we are in week four of the Beginner's Guide to Church. Uh, I don't want to do like a previously in this series, you know, two-minute recap, but if you've missed the last few weeks, you can catch up on YouTube or you can listen to our podcast of the sermons. Uh, we don't want you to miss out on any of that, but we're in our fourth week this morning. Uh, and... You know, we're calling it a beginner's guide to church out of a central foundational conviction that no matter how long we've been attending church or how long we've been a part of a church, in some way or another, we're all still learning. In one way or another, we're all still beginners. That there's, there's more for us to, to learn and, and there's more for us to see, there's more for us to hear. And we want to be people who are open to that. We want to be people who expect to learn new things, to see new things, to hear new things through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I, I know for me this study has been challenging, but it's also been uh, encouraging as, as in my own life. I've been seeing and hearing new things. I've been learning new ideas from Paul's letter to this church in Corinth. I want to start out this morning uh, pointing you to a, a study that Gallup, the, the famous polling organization, put out on March 29th of this year. Now, you may have seen something about this on social media, or, or maybe you heard someone talking about it in your, your friend circles, but it was a big deal for Gallup because they've been doing these nationwide studies in terms of church membership pretty much uh, since they started in 1937. And back then, in 1937, basically 73% of people they, they talked to indicated that they belonged to a church, a, a community of faith of some kind. Now, it peaked at 76% uh, just in the wake of World War II, and it kind of hovered right around 70% for six decades and then starting around the year 2000, as you can see on this, this chart, it's just been a steady decline. And finally, in the latest version of this research, the newest numbers, they reached the place where it's now 47% of Americans indicate that they are members of a community of faith. So under half which is the first time in the history of polling that that, that number has, has been that low. Now, it's not a question of whether or not you attend church, right? That's a different set of data points. This is a question of belonging to church, being committed enough to say, this is my, my family of faith. We're at a place where 47% of our fellow Americans would say, yeah, now, now, last week we kind of talked about this idea that we're living in a world where people aren't asking so much, you know, which church should I go to, but should I go to church at all? Well, again, that's an attendance question. This is a membership question. Why should I belong to a church? And the truth is, and this is a truth that, that if I'm going to be completely honest with you as, as somebody who, who preaches as both a calling and as, as a way for me to think about what I'm doing with my life and as a way for me to think about, okay, who do we want to be as God's people? 
When only 47% of people can come up with an answer to this question that is, is good enough, motivating enough for them to, to belong to a church family, man, I'd rather change the channel or read about another study. I, I don't want to face it. I, I don't want to think about what does it mean that we're now living in a world, that we're now living in a nation where the majority of people say, I cannot come up with a good enough answer for this to belong to a church. And I guess we all need to wrestle with, if somebody were to ask us as individuals, if, if you were to be asked directly how you would answer this question, why should somebody who, who doesn't have a meaningful, committed relationship with a, a church family, why should they do that? How do you think you might answer it? How would I answer it? I think for a lot of us, I know, I know for myself, I would probably start to shift into almost trying to sell our church to somebody. I mean, I wouldn't start with the preaching because that would be awkward. But I would talk about all of the programs that we have that I feel like might draw you to this place and maybe would hold you here. So I would obviously talk about our children's ministry and I would talk about our student ministry and I would talk about our campus ministry and I would talk about all of the great people who are here because it wouldn't just be programs. It would also be people, be relationships and say, you know, there's, there's good people here who if you don't know yet, you'd be blessed to know them. You'd, you'd be blessed to have a relationship with them. But what I'd pretty much be doing is trying to package our church or market our church in a way that would cause somebody who's currently unmotivated to decide there's enough in it for them to come here. Because that's, that's what makes this question, I think, difficult. Right? If we're really honest, I think we're going to have to say that, that what we're really asking with this question is, what am I getting out of this? What's in it for me? And that doesn't feel like a question that Christian people, or disciples of Jesus, should ever be asking. Because it doesn't feel like a question I, I want to be asking. But here's the tricky thing. We're all asking this question all the time, no matter where we are or who we're with. We're constantly evaluating, aren't we? Should I stay in this friendship? Should I stay at this job? Should I stay at this church? What am I getting out of this? Is it good enough to keep me here? Now, the reason that I think it's important for us to admit that we all ask this question is if we pretend that we don't, we probably come up with some pretty selfish motivations, some pretty selfish expectations that we don't even know we're carrying with us, but if a church doesn't meet those expectations, then we start to get this generalized sense of, of disconnection and disappointment, and we're not quite sure what it is because all the things are kind of the same, and the sermons all kind of sound the same, and they used to work, but now they're not working, and what is it? And, and then pretty soon we, we make the decision that maybe this this isn't the church for us. Maybe we need to go try another church, or maybe we need to, to take a break from church altogether. We ask this question. We carry it with us in our hearts. And Scripture doesn't dodge this question. Jesus doesn't act like we don't carry with us a sense of Okay, if I give my life to Christ, if I make a commitment to a faith family, what's going to happen? What's going to happen in my life? What's going to happen to my heart? What is going to be my reward? I know this is the question that Christians a couple of thousand years ago in Corinth were asking. Scholars disagree about this. Scholars disagree about everything. They can't figure out if, if the church was there for about three years or about five years before Paul writes 1 Corinthians. 
but it's probably no longer than five years. He helped start the church there. He helped uh, convert the first believers. And you've got to imagine a, a church that's probably about 30 to 40 members, all the way from cradle to, to the senior saints, right, at this church. And they are still figuring out what it means to live lives committed to Christ. They're still figuring out how church as a faith community is different than any other faith community that's out there in the the religious marketplace of the Roman Empire in the first century. And there is quite a robust, healthy, competitive religious marketplace in Corinth in the first century. There's all these traveling speakers, there's these philosophers, and they lay out for their listeners who they hope they will convert into disciples who then will will support their, their ministry, right, their teaching ministry. They make these promises to people, and they try to be the image of the outcome of their way of life, their, their exhibit A of what if, if you believe these things, if you do what they tell you to do, then you're going to have the same kind of life they have. And they like to focus on things like, you know what, everybody around you, if you, if you do what I tell you to do, everybody around you is going to think that you're wise. Everyone around you is going to see your strength. Everyone around you is going to pay you honor. So follow me. Listen to me. And there's a part of these three- to five-year-old Christians, that's how long they've been trying to to do this new way of life that Paul has been teaching them about. There's a part of them that thinks Paul's just one more teacher, one more philosopher, and that he, even though he's never talked that way, that, of course, if if he's going to be doing the same kinds of things that these other teachers and philosophers are doing, then surely being a part of the church and listening to Paul's teaching, that's going to make them have all the people around them see them as wise and strong and honored. That's how they answer the question, what am I getting out of this? And Paul, in the fourth chapter of 1 Corinthians, says, oh, you're getting something out of this. It's just not what you think it is. So with, if, you're, if you have a Bible to you, just go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, we'll start reading together in verse I suppose that God has shown that we apostles are at the end of the line. We're like prisoners sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle in the world both to angels and to humans. Okay, so I want to kind of walk you through some of what's going on here because Paul is using ideas and images that people in Corinth were familiar with that we're not as familiar with. So when he says, I suppose that God has shown us apostles to be at the end of the line, what he's talking about is, you know, in the first century they didn't have Twitter or Facebook or even 24-hour cable news. Man, it'd be one thing to go back there, right? (laughs) There's there's something that that seems... uh, really good about that. So here, here's one of the things that would happen is the, the Roman Empire was always expanding and it was always fighting battles on the edges of the empire and Roman generals would take credit for victories at times that they actually, there was no real battle or someone else won the battle. But see, if they got back to Rome first and told everybody, we defeated these people out on the frontier, just trust me, I've never lost a fight, people would say, okay, prove it. We've, we've been tricked before. Show us that you won the battle. So over time, it it became just a custom that when generals would return to Rome and they'd start telling their stories of victory, this is where the whole concept of of a, a parade really found its footing in Western culture. They paraded everything, all the treasure all of the the material possessions that they had laid claim to through their victory. They would parade that through the city. 
And at the end of the parade, in addition to all that, they'd have their soldiers who had survived the battle, and, and everybody would see them and be impressed by them. And then eventually, at the very end of the parade, were all the prisoners of war. They were living, breathing proof that these generals had won. And usually, what would happen at the end of the day, of the, of the celebration, is that those prisoners of war were either executed publicly or they were sold off into slavery. And Paul says, that's who the apostles are. We're at the end of the parade. We're public losers. Because that's what it it was, public humiliation. In a culture where the worst thing that could happen to you, worse even than death, was public humiliation. And Paul says, we're not just humiliated in front of some people who happen to be at the right Roman city at the right time. We're publicly humiliated in front of what? what? People and angels. In front of the whole universe. We're at the end of the line. Now my guess is, as these church members in Corinth are listening to this, they're relieved because none of them are apostles. They're fine if that's what's happening to Paul. Paul can can be that guy. But Paul isn't done yet. So he says, verse 10, We are fools for Christ. Now all of this is about being seen. It's how people view you. And he is heavily sarcastic here. Whatever sarcastic tone of voice you're used to, hear it right now. Okay? So we're seen as fools for Christ, but you're wise through Christ. We're weak, but oh man, you guys are so strong. You're honored, but we're dishonored. Up to this very moment, we're hungry, thirsty, wearing rags, abused, and homeless. We work hard with our own hands. Now, I need to say... That's like a virtue in American culture that you work hard with your own hands. That's not a virtue in Roman culture. Slaves did that. People at the bottom of the pyramid worked with their hands. Okay? He, he's saying we're, we're in the lowest class possible. That's who we are. When we're insulted, we respond with a blessing. He doesn't say if. When we're insulted. We respond with a blessing. When we are harassed, we put up with it. When our reputation is attacked, we are encouraging. We have become, this is in case you've missed it so far, the scum of the earth, the waste that runs off everything up to the present time. Now, the Greek imagery that that Paul's using here when he says we're the scum of the earth, we're the the waste that runs off everything, I want you to picture this because it's disgusting. And Paul's being disgusting on purpose. You know the junk left on a plate when everybody's done with a meal and you get the job to scrape it into the garbage? That's what he says he is. The junk that's left over that nobody else wants. Now again, as they're listening to this, they got to be thinking they're lucky stars. They're not an apostle. Verse 14. I'm not writing these things to make you ashamed. I think he is trying a little bit. But to warn you, since you're my loved children, you may have 10,000 mentors in Christ. Now, that word in English is impressive, right? Mentors. I mean, we like to be mentors. We like to have mentors. This is the, the Greek term for the, the slave in a wealthy household who was the babysitter. They were the ones who took the kids to school. They picked them up from school. They were their tutors. So you may have thousands of babysitters, but you only have one father, right? Not many fathers. I gave birth to you in Christ Jesus through the gospel, Now, here's the clincher, verse 16. And I'm guessing that the church in Corinth would have liked to just skip to another verse. So I encourage you to follow my example. 
What he's saying is, look, babysitters may or may not shape your character, but your father does. Your parents do. And I'm, I'm like your father and your mother in Christ, right? That's this mixed message of father and he gives birth. And he's saying, I'm, I'm the one who brought you to this place. I'm the one who was trying to teach you what it's like to, to not only believe in Jesus, but to live like Jesus. And I'm telling you, this is my life and it's supposed to be your life. It's really uncomfortable for somebody to talk about all of the difficulties they're going through because of their faith and then basically says to you, uh, watch and learn. See what I do. Listen to how I speak. Follow my example. You, you joined this whole church thing. You signed up as a follower of Jesus Paul says, because you want to be seen, you want to be regarded, you want to have the reputation in the world of being wise and strong and honored. But see, the world has lost its mind. This is Paul, not me. The world has lost its mind. Everything's upside down and inside out. And so if, if you're really going to be like Jesus... The world isn't going to see you in that kind of light. Instead, the world's going to see you as foolish, as crazy, as weak. The world's not going to pay you any tribute or honor. At least that's not happening to me, Paul says. And because I'm trying to raise you to follow my example, why would you expect that it's going to happen for you, unless you figured out how to redefine church and Christianity in such a way where it benefits you in worldly ways. And if you do that, if you redefine, if you, if you change the culture of, of church and what it means to follow Christ to the point where it's of worldly benefit to you, you are lying to yourselves. You're convincing yourselves that this is how it can work. And you don't understand that you've lost your way. And, and this is what's so difficult for Paul, right? Three or, or five years or whatever it is, they've already managed to lose their foundation. They, they have signed up to follow Christ and him crucified. And instead of being at the end of the parade where the world looks at people and shakes their head, they want to be the general at the front of the parade who takes all the credit. And he says, you're, you're in the wrong place. You're chasing after the wrong things. So I need you to look at my way of life again. The way of life that turns your stomach. And I need you to ask yourself if you're willing to watch and learn. What am I getting out of this? That's the question that they're asking. What they, what they want to get out of it is wisdom and strength. They, they want to get honor paid to them. Paul says, no, you are getting something out of church. It's the Jesus way of life. And it is the only way of life that's worth living. But it's going to cost you everything. It's the only way of life worth having. But you're going to have to give everything else away. So do you still want to be these people? And do you still want to belong to this church? Or do you think you know better than I do? Do, do you think you know better than Jesus does when it comes to what it means to have a life that's truly worth having? You know, it's been a, a struggle for me throughout this study Every time I sit down and I start looking at the next passage, I think, man, I need to shorten this series. This is, this is relentless. And there's a part of me that wants to identify with the Apostle Paul, because that's a lot more comfortable place to be than to have to identify with the church members in Corinth. But I'll just confess to you this morning, brothers and sisters, I am far closer to the church members in Corinth than I am to Paul. And i got to find the courage to let... Paul call me on the carpet. So I'm going to let Paul do that and you're just, you'll have to overhear it.
Paul, throughout this passage, is saying that it's a human desire to be seen in a very certain way. To be impressive, to be victorious, to be an overcomer, to be a winner, to be at the top. In fact, we're more interested in being seen that way than it being the truth. And what Paul is, is conceding and agreeing to is the idea that we live lives that are seen. But what he wants to call our attention to is how, how difficult it is for us to really see the truth in ourselves and in, in other people. Right, so what I think you and I need to understand here is that the Christian way of life, it's, it's a way of life that's meant to be witnessed. It's not meant to be something that's completely private or internal. It's, it's not a set of values that you agree to just with, with mental agreement, and that's about as far as it goes, although I, I will say that I am convinced that the, the Christian way of life, the Jesus way of life, it, it is a certain way of thinking that leads to a certain way of living. And if it doesn't lead to that way of living, then it's probably not a healthy way of, of thinking. And we've talked about this before in this series. I don't think it's a certain way of thinking about Christ. I think it's a certain way of thinking like Christ. It's not just what we, we agree to as historical fact. It's trying to see our lives and, and everyone else's lives in a new way, in a new light, in, in light of the gospel that says that you could, if you get yourself confused enough, you could gain the whole world and lose yourself, lose your soul. In fact, that's the warning that Jesus gives time and again. Paul echoes that sentiment here. He says, look, yeah, we're on display it's not just everybody around you watching. The whole universe is watching. And our way of life should be so counter to the world's way of life that we confuse them enough to make them curious. To wonder how do these people who call themselves followers of Jesus, how do they actually think this is going to work? See, and I, I'm convinced that it would be far easier if the Christian life is a way of life that you and I just have to describe really well and lay out the arguments for and instruct people on and then it's over. But Paul says, no, nah, you have 10,000 babysitters to do that for you. This is family. We need Christian people in our lives who are like fathers and mothers to us in the faith who show us what it's like to live this way, not just think about living this way, but actually follow through in living this way. And are you willing to look like a fool to someone who doesn't get it? Are you willing for somebody to, to misrepresent what's actually happening to the point where they think you're weak, even though you're really strong? Are you willing for people to call you names and and get over you and ignore you and trust that all that really matters is that you're making daily decisions that are helping you think more and more and then live more and more like Jesus. What matters to you? What are you getting out of this? The Christian way of life is meant to be witnessed and people are watching us, church. People are watching us. And I know you know this, but I'm going to tell you this anyway. We are more witnessed at this time in history than I think it's ever been possible for people to be witnessed before. We, we have more people watching and listening to us than anybody in the first century ever had. I mean, you, you could go through life and not have a private thought. And there are times where I just wish more of us had more private thoughts. Right? It's all on display if, if you want it to be. But see, he's not just talking about you getting to choose how it's on display, how your life is on display. He's saying you don't realize how much people are, 
are trying to see something in you, trying to hear something in you, and they make their own decisions about that just by, by their own interpretation. So what are they finding when they witness your life? Not the edited, you know, best picture out of 16 takes that you put on the internet. We're talking about how do you react when you get caught at the third red light in a row. And it's because a, a person in front of you who's too short to see over the dashboard didn't go through an entire green light. Who are you then? Right? I mean, I've told you this before. It's why I will, I will not put a fish on my car. I am not dragging Jesus through the mud of my driving. I'm not doing it. But it doesn't matter because my life's still being witnessed. Your life is still being witnessed. So what are people finding there? Now, Paul doesn't just leave that up to the Corinthians to answer. He doesn't leave that up to us. He says, I'll tell you what they're supposed to see. What, what should the world witness in us? Well, he says, when we're insulted, what? It's on the screen. I'm getting, letting you cheat. We respond with a blessing. When we're harassed, what? Say it louder. We put up with it. When our reputations are attacked, what? Not generally encouraging. The Greek term there is to the very person who is attacking our reputation. We're encouraging in response to our attacker. The world's watching us. The world is witnessing us, and I'm just going to be really honest with you this morning. It would be very rare if someone's watching me carefully to see me live like this. I don't even think like this. I think like a Corinthian. When you insult me, you know what I'm doing? I'm working on a comeback. And I just hope nobody who goes to Southern Hills is around when I say it. Right? When, when I'm harassed, when somebody is purposely making my life harder, I decide, oh, I can beat you at this game. I can be ruder than you are. When, I'm, when my reputation is attacked, that would never happen to a minister, I promise. No. What, right? We all have this. Someone's talking about you in ways that are ungracious and unfair, or they're telling people things about you that aren't true. What do you do? What are you tempted to do? What does your mind immediately go to? Who are my people who I can get to and talk to, and I'm going to recruit them on my side, and then it's all out war? That's how I think. Because I'm still on the journey of being made more like Jesus, and this part of my life, is a, it's a learning gap. I would rather have Jesus help me memorize scripture. Not this scripture, other scriptures, right? I would rather have Jesus help me figure out how to, how to heal people's broken bodies and hearts. I, I would rather have Jesus help me do a lot of things this is the part right here. Paul is highlighting the part of the Sermon on the Mount that I just kind of try to skip past really quick. You know the part of the Sermon on the Mount. Luke chapter 6, verses 28, 29, where he says, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And if someone strikes you on one cheek, what? Stay there and take a beating. But what Jesus is trying to say here is, when we look at our world and we have moments where we feel like we're caught up in some kind of struggle, some kind of war, maybe even something we might call a culture war. When we decide that, that we need to figure out how to turn things around, what he says is, look, if you really want to turn things around, you're going to really have to turn the other cheek. And I'm not kidding, and you're not smarter than me because you're not going to come up with a better way to turn things around. I know you think you can come up with a better way. 
I, I know you think you can come up with a more powerful way. I know you think you can come up with a way that's, that's going to give you this sterling reputation in the eyes of the world. But if you really want to turn things around, you're going to have to really turn the other cheek. We know this. If we've ever heard the Sermon on the Mount before, we, we know this now if it's the very first time we're hearing any words like this. It's not a matter of understanding the Christ-like strategy here. It's a matter of getting past being impressed with Jesus living that way and apostles living that way. What, what, look, what he's trying to say is if you're a member of a church, you might as well be an apostle. You represent Christ. You don't get to give the really hard stuff to somebody who's holier than you. It's for all of us. Here's what I'm concerned about, brothers and sisters. I feel like this has been a constant struggle since the very beginning of churches and Christianity. And it's this, that the ways of the world bait us into having culture wars with the world on the world's terms. We have culture wars with their rules of engagement. And then we think that we can win the war through force and through threats and through getting in positions of power in a culture. But what we don't realize is the moment we put down self-giving love and we pick up the weapons of culture war, we've lost the war. When we fight it on the world's terms, we've lost everything. And what Paul's trying to say in in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians is, if you lose your way, if you lose yourself to the point that you think you're owning the opposition for Jesus, you don't know who you are anymore. You don't know who you are anymore. And look, here's the thing. I fall into this. I grew up in a home where dinner was like a full contact sport with arguing. I mean, you had to come ready. Because my dad and my mom and my I mean, every, people just picked fights at dinner just to see who was smarter. My dad thought he was smarter, and we let him think it. But, you know, he had to win. We weren't going to have a good evening if he didn't win. And then you add to that my sense growing up of the fact that what the Church of Christ was really all about was winning theological arguments with the Baptists or the Methodists or whoever it is. And I thought that's how I was going to prove that I was serious about my faith. Well, I got to the point where all I was really trying to do was be just this overwhelmingly impressive debater. And somehow I thought if I humiliated you in a rhetorically sophisticated way enough, at the end of the argument, you would, you would break down in tears and hug me and thank me for setting you straight. Never happened once. I lost a lot of friendships that way. Insufferable know-it-all for Jesus. You know, in the churches of Christ, we kind of have two spiritual fathers. Most recently in our kind of development in the United States, Barton Stone and Alexander Campbell. They both, like a lot of people in the frontier expansion in, in the United States, they got to a point. You know why people left Europe to come over here, right? Well, let me back up even further than that. Do you know why the first murder happened? A disagreement over worship. It's not like a metaphor. Cain killed Abel because he worshipped differently than him and he realized God liked Abel's worship more and he thought that meant that God loved Abel more. And so instead of asking Abel what's going on, he killed his competition. And then he said... There's nobody else to worship you, God, so surely this is good enough. With blood on his hands. Okay, well, you fast forward, you know, a bunch of years. 
Guess what was happening in Europe? The church was in positions of power enough where they could kill you for belonging to the wrong church. And guess what they did? They killed each other for being in the wrong church. And guess why it kept changing? Because the, the, church, the official religion changed whenever the, the monarch changed. So first it was safe to be a Catholic and then it wasn't. And then you had to be in the Church of England and then you couldn't be. And it got worse and worse and worse until some people said, yeah, I've had it. I'm going out to a place where I can worship without people killing me because they disagree with me about how I worship. So they get here and they set up shop, except for they bring all their divisions with them. And Barton Stone and Alexander Campbell come out of, well, Alexander Campbell kind of out of the Presbyterian slash Baptist heritage and Barton Stone kind of in a, in a different way, but in a similar journey. They get to the place where they just want to be Christians. They don't. They don't want to hate anybody because they don't agree with them about everything. But they kind of come at it in two different ways. And they're trying to find unity together. And they both believe that God is the one who brings unity. Barton Stone believes it's the love of God that makes unity possible. Alexander Campbell says, I'm with you on the, the love, but I don't want to get too fuzzy and lovey-dovey. I mean, if we're going to be united, we need to think alike on the really important stuff. The problem is as time passed, his list of what was really, really important got longer and longer and longer, and he got more precise. And in fact, this is how hard up people were for entertainment back in those days. They would have these public debates in publications. I mean, can you imagine reading a debate between two guys over the course of a year, and you're like eagerly waiting for the new edition? Well, at one point, they're arguing about something, and I'm paraphrasing here, but Barton Stone feels like Alexander Campbell has crossed the line. He's sarcastic and snarky and a know-it-all. And Barton Stone responds, not by engaging any of the content of the debate at that point. He just says to him, if you won't behave in the way of Christ as you try to instruct me about Christ, we're done with this, this argument. That's in, our, that's in our spiritual DNA, brothers and sisters. This struggle of, okay, how is this going to work? And there's a constant temptation to start being ugly to somebody while we're trying to show them the truth about Jesus. And we think that's somehow going to work because we think it's working out there in the world. But here's the thing. Does it look like anything's working in the world right now very well? Does it look like anybody's listening to anybody? Like, really? Does it look like anybody's changing their mind because of the, the rhetorical brilliance of somebody who sets them straight? Yeah, but I know what we keep telling ourselves. I haven't written the perfect argument yet. These other people are just trying. I'll show them how it's done. No. That's a great way to be unfollowed or hidden or whatever people do. Look, it's... It's not your imagination. The world is changing. And specifically in our nation, people are less and less interested in Christianity as an official organized religion. And I can't help but wonder if part of their lack of interest is they don't find enough Jesus in his followers. I mean, this has been keeping me up at night. I mean, the world is, is watching the church. And what the world sees in us directly impacts the way the world sees Christ. And time and again, I basically hear different people tell me, and this happens to me everywhere I go because, you know, if I'm in line somewhere and I'm there long enough for someone to visit with me or if I'm getting my hair cut or anytime I'm, I'm around folks I don't know, at some point we get to small talk and, you know, one of the first couple questions of small talk is what do you do when I say I'm a preacher? And in one way or another, I'm having more and more people with true grief say to me, 
some version of, I really, I really feel like Jesus loves me, but I don't think the church likes me. Would your church like me? You know, and there's a part of me that wants to say, well, I don't know. Why don't you tell me what your Trinitarian theology is? That's the 12-year-old, you know, debate student. What are we getting out of this? That's the question. Why, why should we belong to a church? Well, part of the reasons we belong to a church is because we need brothers and sisters who love us enough to remind us that the world is watching and they're looking for Jesus. They're trying to hear some trace of, of Christ in us. And it is so easy for us to, to start to think that we can win the war by fighting the war. You can't win the war by fighting the war. You win the war by giving yourself in love for the sake of another. You know, this whole idea of where, when we're insulted, we give a blessing. When we're uh, harassed, we put up with it. When, when we're being attacked, we, we encourage. Do you hear that th that's engagement? I feel like in the culture war thing, I'm either tempted to say, you need to give me the keys of figuring out how I'm going to win. And it's almost like, and this is really embarrassing, but I'm just going to say it. I kind of like basically say in my heart to Jesus, look, 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 I know this isn't great, and maybe you shouldn't watch this part, but once we've vanquished all our enemies, then we'll start acting like you. Once we've, we've won all the arguments, then we'll, we'll pick up the cross. But really, before, before that time, I, what do you expect? I mean, do you see these people? Do you see what they're doing? Do you see what they think? I don't know what we're thinking when we trick ourselves into thinking that Jesus wants us to overcome the world and the people in the world by destroying them. Jesus overcomes the world by dying for the world. He overcomes the world by loving the world when nobody loves him in return. That's how Jesus does it. And here's, here's what I'm really concerned about, okay? Is that we come to this place where we think we know better than Jesus does of what's realistic and what, what will actually work. And we, we get to this place where we think we've, we're the ones who figured out how we can fight back and, and we can dismantle the opposition and not lose our souls in the process. But I'm just afraid that can't be done. You can gain the whole world and lose yourself. In fact, I'm pretty sure if you gain the whole world, you will lose yourself. I want to close with this story, and I hesitate to tell it because uh, I... I've preached too long, and last week I figured that out and ran off like a scared person. Did you notice that at the end last week? Dan was like ju jumping up here to lead the song. I was like, I'm done, I'm out. Man, they don't teach that in preaching class, let me tell you. Okay. Uh, I was going on a mission trip I'd been talked into going on to, and I didn't want to go. Because I, I'm always nervous that evangelism is mainly about winning the argument. And I, I, I had learned at that point it doesn't really work. So I was going, and we were supposed to go do this mission trip in uh, Volgograd, Russia. But the, the day we took off, while we were in the air, that unpronounceable Icelandic volcano went off. You remember this? This was several years ago. And there was ash in the air. And ash, if it gets inside of a, a, an airplane's engine, can shut the engine off. So... They decided they needed to land the plane sooner than where we were going, and I was all for that. Okay, but I was next to this guy, so they rerouted us to Madrid, Spain. A little sunnier than Volgograd, Russia, but they rerouted us. And I'm on this plane with this guy, and he's sitting next to me. He's from Australia, 
starts to tell me that he writes the mood music for the CSI franchise, like behind the, the, he said, don't get impressed. It's just a bunch of chords that sound ominous. I said, okay, I'm not impressed, but I was. And he's talking to me, and you know, he's talking to me for like 30, 40 minutes before he asks me, what do you do? And I, I was like, here we go. I'm a preacher, and I'm stuck next to you for three and a half hours. <laughs> and his response to me is, oh, well, I'm an atheist. And then I really thought, man, i got to figure out another seat. <laughs> and he starts to, I mean, poke holes in everything, right? It was like a, I mean, he was talking about a seven-day creation and why bad things happen to good people and, you know, cancer and all that, all the stuff that people bring up, that, that legitimate questions and concerns and struggles, right? But I'm listening through the, between the lines, and what I find out is he's lost both his parents in the same year, that year. And he says to me, after he lays out all of these scientific, you know, proofs and all these problems, and he says to me, how could you be stupid enough to believe all that? Man, I don't like it when you call me stupid. And I, I pardon me, you want to know stupid? No. And I didn't know what to do, and I said, you know what? I, I don't have all the answers to all your questions the way you want them. But here's what I know. I want there to be a chance that you're going to get to see your parents again. That's all I know. His parents were, were people of faith. And he'd fallen away from faith. And I said, all I, all I want is to believe in a future where you're going to get to see them again. And he started crying. And he said, would you pray for me? And so right there on an airplane, I prayed with this guy. I never got to Russia, but I was right where I needed to be. Now, the reason I hesitate to tell a story like that is preachers are never supposed to tell stories where they're the hero, but I'm not the hero of the story. God is. And here's what our world needs. The beauty of Christ in you. Not perfect answers, not perfect comebacks. The beauty of Christ and the hope of the resurrection, that's what the church is supposed to be. And I promise you, if that's how we will engage the world, we won't have to destroy it. God will redeem it through us. Dan, go ahead. <laughs> We're going to sing together now. Let's stand. We are not afraid to follow where you lead, leaving what